The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's really nice to see everybody. I've been away quite a bit this summer teaching out of town, so I should be here almost the entire fall. Um, I, I will be teaching up north uh, in Duluth next weekend, uh, but we're fortunate to have Niels Heyman teaching Sunday morning. He's wonderful, uh, a longtime community member, but now he lives a little bit out of town in San Francisco. <laughs> but we still get him back uh, two or three times a year to teach, so we're really fortunate he'll be here next um, Sunday morning. He's also leading a POC, People of Color Retreat, on Saturday. For anybody who might be interested, you can register online. Femi Kibanabe is going to be doing movement practice for that retreat. Um, so consider that if that fits you. And um, yeah, so it's just great. And usually in September, we, I've been and other teachers, we've been taking the time every September and January. You know, it's sort of funny that imprint about going back to school after Christmas break in January or after summer break. And it's like, okay, so what are what is it that we do here at Come Meditation Center? What's this stuff about mindfulness? And this is especially important now because mindfulness is sort of big time. It's actually a big industry for better and worse. I mean, mostly good, I think, but it's, you know, it's kind of become professionalized and expensive and <laughs> all kinds of funny stuff, which is mostly, you know, I think helpful for people who are getting able to afford it. But it can get confusing because so many different voices talking about it. And some of those voices maybe don't haven't actually practiced mindfulness. <laughs> so let's just consider, like, what is it that we're doing with our mindful awareness practice? And, you know, from the, the Buddha's point of view, mindfulness was really a liberating practice. That was the point. He was moved by his own suffering. He had a mind, right, a human being with a mind, like us, human beings with a mind and a heart, and found it hard being a human being, like I'm guessing. And if you're not finding it hard being a human being, it's probably because you're not paying attention. Because <laughs> I think it's almost guaranteed to be true that it's not easy to be a human being. Even those human beings with pretty fortunate conditions, it's not easy. And what the Buddha came to understand that a lot of our suffering, not, not the ordinary pain that just comes with aging or loss or these sort of normal insults that come with being a human being, but the way our mind amplifies, resists, struggles, reacts, that suffering arises because our mind, our heart, is misunderstanding what's going on. The way we are in the moment, the way we respond and the attitudes we have, the ideas we live with, they arise, the Buddha might say, because of, or they arise out of misperceiving what's going on. We understand according to our conditioned habits, we don't understand the way it is according to the way it is. So there's this fundamental, ongoing, misperceiving, misunderstanding. Right? I mean, don't we see this in our relationships 
our intimate relationships or even those of you with children, you know, we're sort of handling our kid or our pet based on our idea of what's going on, but it's not what's going on. And then it doesn't seem to work. And we think the kid's broken, you know. But we're just, we haven't clearly seen what's in play, what's going on. We do this at work. We do it in the world. We see a problem in the world and we think we should probably invade, you know, and take over that country because what's going on there is not good, you know. And so we intervene. But we intervene based on not having the breadth and depth of understanding. And so we create more problems. And on and on and on. And in Buddhism we call this samsara, the cycles of suffering. How the very human desire to deal with problems creates problems that we need to deal with. Because that compassionate response comes out of misunderstanding not clarity. So we're everybody, even people who are being unskillful or unwise and hateful and aggressive in the world, they're just a suffering human being trying to feel safe, trying to have happiness. They're just misunderstanding the causes for happiness and so plant seeds of unhappiness. This should not make us angry. I mean, it's understandable that we get angry when we see that in ourselves or see that in other people. You know, they're trying to be happy, but they're just making things worse. It, would, it, it should really break our hearts because we should recognize that same pattern in ourselves. Oh, yeah, this is what we human beings do. We're all, every one of us, even those who are stagnating on some couch, you know, watching TV or avoiding their lives in whatever way that they have found, everybody's trying to get by. And so that really helps us understand the basic problem is our attempt to resolve the unhappiness in our lives is a is sort of grounded in not understanding the situation. We haven't emphasized enough being intimate, being awake, clearly seeing, being open, being humble. That's important, being interested, uh, pretty sure that we're not seeing things yet completely, fully. Because if we think we already know what's going on, we stop listening, we stop learning. We might politically think we know what's going on, and it might be right to some degree, but if we're pretty sure we're right, we stop learning and we start claiming rightness, you know. And then we're more, we're using more of our psychic energy to defend what we think is right instead of clarifying. Because even if we were right, if we just somehow luckily got the right idea about what's going on, it keeps changing. It's not like it's going to stay that way exactly. So the real breakthrough the Buddha came uh, to to understand isn't so much his deep insight, was his ability to articulate a process, a way of practice 
that folks can follow, which is if the problem is misperceiving, misunderstanding, not seeing clearly, then the way forward is to cultivate the heart or mind that can see clearly. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. It makes a lot of sense. If our problem as a human being, like what's actually each of us in our own particular situation, circumstances, if our, our problem is we're misperceiving and then acting out of that misunderstanding, that misperception, and then things don't work well in our lives, then the resolution is to develop a heart. This is bhavana, it's the word, Pali word, to develop the heart. That's the practice we mean. We use that word practice a lot, but it's really we're developing the heart's capacity. We're strengthening this heart, this mind's capacity to be settled, to be stable, to see clearly, to connect intimately with what's moving, what's happening. It's not figuring it out cognitively. We're not thinking it through. I mean, that can be useful for us in certain situations in our life to talk it out with a friend or just even on our own or some of you journal. And we're finding some way to think through what the heck's going on in this particular situation in my life. There's a place for that. But this is a deeper process than that. However useful that thinking things through can be, this is more, you could say, foundational or primal research. We're collecting data precognitive. We're paying attention to the activity of the mind and body before we think about that activity of the mind and body. Oh yeah, there's this feeling. There's this sight. There's this activity of mind. And this activity of the body mind that's being known. We're just collecting that raw data with mindful awareness. And it changes how we understand, how we think. The attitudes we use to think and process our experience get transformed because of this more foundational collecting of moment-to-moment data. And we can only do that with mindful awareness, with being aware in a non-judging way, in an unfiltered way. That's what makes the practice so hard is we're good at paying attention through our ideas. Like I can be aware of this moment through the idea that this is common ground and you're a bunch of folks here to learn about mindfulness meditation and I'm this guy in the front of the room giving a talk and I've got this history and these are my likes and dislikes my emotional needs and my, you know, whatever. And then I can interpret this experience through all those conceptual frames. But that's a pretty limited way to be aware. Limited in the sense that then my understanding is limited by those filters through which I'm understanding this moment. So we learn to be aware, like we learn to relax. And we learn how to be actually curious from this place of humility, knowing that however we conceive, however we think, whatever we think is happening, that thinking about what this moment is or what this experience is, is not the experience itself. It's a thought that's being known. 
And some of those thoughts are like really diluted and some of those thoughts are less diluted. But no thought is the thing in itself. So like I might check in and go, oh yeah, I'm feeling pretty happy right now. So I have the thought and I could say that to you. I could communicate that to other people. I'm feeling pretty happy right now. But the experience of happiness, whatever that experience that was known that led the mind to conclude I'm happy now, that experience of happiness is not the same as the idea I'm happy. Or if you're feeling depressed now, or if you're feeling agitated, anxious, restless now, that experience is a present moment knowing of the activity of the body and mind that then later your mind concludes, oh yeah, I'm restless. There's a world of difference between feeling the body as it is, seeing the mind as it is, and the concept, the conceiving, I'm restless. And we're really emphasizing this and not the label the mind puts down on our experience or on somebody else. Oh yeah, that's Tom or that's Patrice over there. And then we're no longer in the moment, moment to moment, relating to the person and what that experience actually is, moment to moment. It's very alive, it's actually wild, it's uncertain. Just like our whole life is wild and uncertain. The only thing that makes our life feel like solid is our conception. Oh, I'm Mark Nunberg, I'm 60 years old, I live over there, you know, I've been doing this a long time, I'm this, I'm that. That feels pretty solid. But who I am, what I am, is this this very fragile, this very ephemeral moment-to-moment experience. It arises, is known, this activity of the body, it arises and is known and passes away. And then there's another moment arising and passing away. That's actually what this is, being a human being. Not the story that I'm this guy, this white guy who's 60, who does this, doesn't do that, lives over there. That's a thought being known, or if I say it out loud, that's a thought being heard, you know, words being heard. And if those words or that thought has some impact, that's an impact being felt, right? So to correct the, <coughs> excuse me, the habit of living out of our conceptions of who I am, who you are, what's going on, and having a more authentic and wild, that's actually useful for a barometer, whether we're practicing or not. The more wild and uncertain and alive it feels, both when you're sitting and then just living your life, the more you're practicing. The more you feel like, I got this, I know what's going on, Now, sometimes when we think we got it, we're catastrophizing, right? And sometimes when we think we got it, we've got a really pretty scenario going in our mind. So remember, that can look a lot of different ways, this arrogant sense that I got it, I know what's going on. I'm no good, I've never been good, I never will be good. 
That could be your, in one moment, way of getting it. But that's just an idea being known. And if there's a feeling, an emotional charge with that idea, then that's just that charge being felt. So what we are is, this is the radical piece here, and this really goes to the heart of practice. What we are is this moment-to-moment-to-moment process, you could say natural process, of something being known. Something being known. Something being known. So the whole course of practice is a shift in allegiance from the conceptions our mind constructs about who I am, what's going on, what's important, what's not important. Now, we don't have to stop having thoughts. We just have to stop pretending that the thoughts are more than what they are. We're always going to need thoughts and views and ideas and concepts. That's how we connect. That's how we build community through thoughts and ideas. But we're shifting our allegiance, our dependence on that, our opinions, our thoughts, our beliefs, to just seeing them as a pragmatic, skillful means of communication. And then the allegiance shifts from that to things as they are. Oh, this is being known, this is being felt. So for example, we're sitting now. So because the body is here, there's always sensations happening, coming and going in the body, right? Can you sense those sensations right now? So this is actually our home. And just the body's only one piece of what's happening in the present moment. Then there's this whole world of mind. Thoughts, emotions, perceptions, memory. There's all this mental activity, right? But let's just stick with the body. It's a little easier, a little bit more concrete to open to the body. Not the concept body, but the actual very surprisingly ephemeral experience of body, sensation. So can you keep in touch, even as you're hearing what I'm saying, can you stay attuned? And it's almost like it's a river of sensation. Do you notice that? It's like your body's not one thing. Okay, I got it. No, I don't have to pay attention to it because I felt it. But it's not one thing. If you think it's one thing, you haven't gotten close enough. You haven't been humble enough to really show up to the experience of embodiment. Because the body is a very fluid, ephemeral. Ephemeral not in the sense that it's, sometimes it's very like in our face, pain, physical pain, for example, or physical pleasure too. But it's fluid. It doesn't have an end point. It doesn't stop. It's better to understand the body as a river always flowing, always becoming the next way it is, becoming more this, less that. That's another really important barometer. I mentioned, you know, it's more wild, there's more alive, more humility, more the sense, the deepening sense that I can't actually grasp who and what I am. Somebody might ask us, And if they're not like a fellow practitioner, 
we'd say, you know, I'm a white male who's 60 years old, who grew up here, who does this, who's in a relationship with this person. But we wouldn't be confused by those words. We would just be doing the culturally appropriate thing because that's what the person, that's the answer, the kind of answer the person expected. Because we know that who we are is this very wild and ungraspable dance of body and mind. I mean, just think, it's only, you know, 11.30 almost. And how many minds have we had already today? Right? All kinds of minds. The mind delighting some of us, you know, Minnesota Public Radio junkies. You know, we're listening to the Sunday Puzzle on morning, what is it, weekend edition at 7.40, I think it is, they have it on. (laughs) With the editor of the New York Times Puzzle, (laughs) Puzzle Master Will Shores. It's like we could repeat it because we know it's like, And there is that mind moment when we heard something familiar. Or like, as I was leaving, my friendly, our friendly cat kind of runs across the street to to be with me. Oh, rolls in its belly, you know. So I had a couple moments. And then followed me as I walked to the center for half a block or so before he realized, I don't want to go any further. (laughs) Or there's something more interesting over here. You know, are they the difficult things? You know, listening to the news or checking the email or, you know, having to clean up a mess or dealing with the achy body. But every time something happened, there was a different arising in the mind, a different perception, a different emotion, a different reactive, you know, whatever, a different feeling in the body. And it was sort of like a different mark in every one of those moments, moment by moment by moment. And we're learning to live in this place. This is why we call it a practice. We're learning to be, to see that being, even in a, a relatively wholesome story, the attachment, the need for that story to be true or to be reality is oppressive. And it's like an open space to know that we don't know, to be intimate with the present moment. Like, again, just in real time right now, before we end, for just a few moments, check out that experience of knowing that you don't know. You don't need to have a conception or concept of who you are or whether your life is good, whether you've been doing good or doing bad in your life whether things are going well or not. It's just this being known. This is our life. Whatever you're experiencing as this activity of the body and the mind right now, this is our life. Not anything more or less. So it's not like when we say, like in Buddhism we say, and we study this book for the last year or so, we stopped a while back now, but Emptiness, uh, Guy Armstrong's book. So we have this term empty. And it's that realization that this moment is empty of anything other than this 
ephemeral moment being known. That's all it is. It's a great mystery, actually. Mystery in the sense that no conception or concept can help, can define, can give us the ground we think we need. We're learning to live without ground. But in the intimacy, in the ephemeral intimacy, now it's like this, and now it's like this. And before we can even make this ground, it's another this being known, and then another this, and another this. And, you know, with some kind of relaxation and curiosity, we can get a little bit of a sense of what's unfolding here, right? We can kind of read the dynamic of the present moment, have some intuition that kind of illuminates, like, oh, yeah, I can trust, I can relax, I can skillfully respond moment by moment by moment, but we can never really own it or grasp it or get it under control. And every time human beings try to do that, they ruin their intimate relationship with their cat or their partner or their kids or the world. When countries try to get it all together, right? We need to nail down our resources we're going to need in the decades ahead. Well, here's a country, you know, let's find a way to lock this in. Oh, they're resisting. How can we make it happen? So whether we're talking about in our intimate relationships or in our global situation, needing, a human being's needing to be in control is the root of suffering, of oppression, of injustice. You can study history, it proves this, I think, without a doubt. So this practice we're doing is liberating, not just in our own specific lives, but it's how we model non-oppression, how we learn to help these patterns of oppression unwind, maybe slowly, maybe hopefully at times more quickly. But we really invest in this, like learning how to be in the moment without being afraid and without needing to be in control. It's, that's why we sit down in a quiet place, we hold the body relatively still, because we need kindergarten every day, ideally for a couple hours, but 10 minutes will do. If you don't have an hour or half an hour or 15 minutes, then do it for 10 minutes. Most people have 10 minutes, even those with children. This last week uh, I was out in the West Coast teaching with Kamala Masters, a wonderful, one of our elder teachers, and she's wonderful in a lot of ways, but she had to do a lot of her early practice as a single mom raising three children, eventually had a fourth, but, you know, for a while as a single mom raising three kids, young kids, you know, and her teacher would, she would stay with her when he was visiting, because he's from India, Manindaji, a famous teacher in this lineage, who for a while was a civil servant in Burma, so he learned in the Burmese monasteries with some of the great Sayadaws, Burmese monks, back in the day, and then moved back to India later in his life and ran the Burmese Vihara, this center for the Burmese pilgrims in Bodh Gaya, the place where the Buddha had his awakening. It's kind of a pilgrimage site in India. A lot of people go there. And so then Westerners got to meet Munindaji, um, including Kamala at some point when he visited in the West and then became a devoted, Kamala became a devoted student. 
And so Menindaji would just have her practice in the hallway between the living room and kitchen and this other room. And that was the one place where Kamala had a little bit of simple kindergarten time to just be with things radically as they are. Activity of the body and mind being known and could step out of the dependence on our ideas about things. Trying to get in control of my life by having an idea of what's happening. Right, So we're losing control and realizing little by little it's okay. There's a new kind of ground we could say. The ground of no ground. Getting comfortable with no ground. And that's what we mean by being aware of the present moment. Because the present moment is a river. It isn't a thing. It's something coming and going. It's a flowing. It never stops. Can't be grasped. I'll just end with this uh, little simple and fun teaching from Ajahn Sumedho, one of our, another one of our elder teachers in this early Buddhism practice we do here at Common Ground. Sometimes we call it insight meditation or vipassana meditation related to this ancient Theravada Buddhist lineage. But here in the West, more and more, we call it early Buddhism or Vipassana or insight meditation. And Ajahn Sumedho is a Western monk, from originally from Seattle. He studied with a great teacher in Thailand, ordained, and has been a monk now for more than 40 years, somewhat retired. But he wrote a while back, the practice of, this is about the practice of letting go. He says, the practice of letting go, or you could use the word allowing, is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking, i.e. you and me. <laughs> <laughs> you, simply, you simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go, and you can substitute letting be or allowing here, right? Because letting go for some of you will sound a little too assertive, too parental. So make it letting be or allowing Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and spread the suttas, or I'm sorry, and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma, the sort of Buddhist psychology, and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, the ancient languages, and this tradition, and then he goes on and on about the different sort of things you can study. Write books, become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. Or let be, let be, let be. If or I did nothing but this for two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go. Until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, right? radiating love throughout the world, but instead I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love through the world, just be an earthworm who knows only two word, words, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting be, letting be, letting be. So I'll leave it here. We have time before the children will come in, maybe five or ten minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a couple of you. So any questions you have about what I've said or comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group?
It's always nice to learn from a few folks. Yeah, please. From the kind of moment you started talking uh, up until the very end, uh, just kind of one word was coming to mind for me, and that was codependence. <laughs> um, and just this idea of, um, in my own life, uh, being kind of identifying as a rescuer of sorts. Um, and you were talking about, you know, um, this country in particular and our, and our need to intervene, um, in international matters. And if I break that down in my own life, uh, and just look at my, um, my instinct to intervene in the lives of others when I see suffering in other people's lives, um, it's very much an escape. Uh, it's very much an escape for me. Um, and what I have found, um, recently, uh, I've been confronted with the, the real reality of the damage that I can cause by intervening in other people's lives by this, this, you know, having nothing but good intentions of trying to relieve somebody's suffering, but at the same time, robbing them of the ability to figure things out for themselves, you know? And, uh, yeah, so that, um, that's been something that has been really, really difficult for me to work through. Um, trying to, <laughs> trying to, um, come across as a compassionate and loving person. Um, but at the same time, fade into the background and let people do what they need to do. This it requires a humility that I haven't quite grasped yet. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, you just, you had me thinking about that. And so I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have to fade in the background because we could very um, confidently model taking care of our own suffering. And that's sort of the, the idea of common ground or places like common ground, right? We're here not trying to save each other or trying to help others, including the teachers, save us. We're here learning together how to take care of our hearts, right? And we're inspired by everybody else doing their best and their complicated situations to take care of themselves wisely, to learn. And we really can support other people. So instead of telling them how they should fix themselves, we can connect because we know how hard it is to be a human being. So just on that empathetic level, it is easy to be confused. It is easy to spin one or two or 10,000 more times through those cycles of samsara, right? To do things that don't help, basically. So we know what that's like. So we can be empathetic when we see it happening in others. And the thing is, when we see somebody else suffering and it impacts our heart, first and foremost, the question is, how can I be close to somebody suffering without suffering so that I don't have to back away? Because a lot of the times when we're codependent, we want to help someone not suffer. It's because we're, their suffering is irritating us. You know, your suffering is making me suffer, so I got to fix you, damn it. <laughs> it isn't, we think it's compassionate, we'll tell ourselves it's compassion, but it's really we don't know how to be relaxed when our partner or cat or our world is suffering. 
We need to know how to be intimate. And we can't be intimate and afraid of their suffering. We have to understand, oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. There's tremendous suffering and confusion in our world, in our families, in our own mind. And we have to know how to have space to be show up in that. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us. Yeah, Haya and then Lisa. Just want to thank you for especially the end there because I'm aware of a lot of times you know something will happen or why did that happen or you know can you know what's the why how can I fix it how can I whatever and I really I intend very much so going home this week and going let it be this is the way it is right now this is the way it is right now you know, and I just want to thank you for that because I think it makes such a difference Then there's a problem going on and I have to fix it. And I'm going, no, I don't have to fix it listening today. And I thank you. Yeah. We just need to participate, like let it in. Yeah. Thanks, Haya. Uh, thanks, Haya. And, and Mark, I totally agree with uh, your talk in the end and the let it be but I'd like to uh, I don't know your name Jerry Uh, I'd like to thank you for your comment as well I have the same tendency and the what I've been doing lately that seems to really help me is anytime my mind even engages in that idea of, oh, I need to help this person or fix this person, I say, Lisa, what are you feeling right now? And think about your body. What are the feelings in your body? You know, just take myself back there and away from the that automatic reflex to try and help. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. So uh, we need to end it here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.